morning. So one day when uh, Jesus was talking with his disciples, he asked them a question. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This term, Son of Man, is borrowed from the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, a vision that he has. And it refers to a human being or one who was like a human being. Over the years, it became more associated with the Messiah, and that's how Jesus is using it um, in that, that question that he's asking. Jesus asks the question in the third person uh, about himself, uh, but perhaps he does it just to keep things hypothetical for a bit before he dives in. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The disciples reply, well, some say uh, the Son of Man is John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jer- Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then Jesus zeroes in, And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? He switches to the first person. He confirms that he's been talking about himself all along. He is the Son of Man. Who do the disciples say Jesus is? And then Peter speaks up. So often in the Gospels, uh, Peter speaks up, and um, he... uh, In fact, he does so after this exchange that I'm telling you about right now. He speaks up and he gets it wrong. He says more than he should have said. He's the patron saint of all of us who sometimes put our foot in our mouths. He says more than he should have said. Quite often he gets it wrong. He should really just talk less and smile more. But not here. Here Peter gets it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he says. This is what we read. In Matthew 16, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus' intent is to build his church, and in saying, and in saying this to Peter, Jesus reveals something of God's mystery. This church will be incredibly, incredibly, that's the wrong passage. I don't like that. I don't like you to see something I'm going to say later. I just don't like it. There it is. Okay. Jesus' intent is to build his church. And in saying this to Peter, Jesus is revealing a bit of the mystery. God's mystery. This church is going to be incredibly powerful. The very gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the place of the dead or the grave. Some translations will say the word hell instead of Hades, but the Greek word here is Hades. And it has a very specific meaning. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines Hades this way. In Biblical Greek, it is associated with Orcus, the underworld of Greek mythology. The infernal regions, a dark and dismal place in the very depths of the earth, the common receptacle of disembodied spirits, and then it finishes with this. Usually, Hades is just the abode of the wicked, a very uncomfortable place. Hades is opposed to life, it is opposed to God in its most literal sense. Hades is death. And death is a powerful force. In the end, death will take us all. And as they say, there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. I add a third certainty, weeds but this grouping of followers known as the Church of Jesus Christ is stronger and more powerful than 
death itself. The gates of Hades will simply not be able to prevail once the church is birthed on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. The church will be victorious and death will be defeated. The church, as Jesus defines it here, is a is a powerful entity and key to God's plan. The church, as the Apostle Paul will define it in our passage today, is also a powerful entity. Paul begins our next section of the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, by shifting gears. He's about to launch into what, in my experience, is one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture, but he realizes there's something else he needs to say first, something he needs to clarify. So he begins... In verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. He starts to offer up a prayer that he won't get to until next week's passage in verse 14. And he breaks off. He remembers something. For this reason, Paul says, what reason? Everything he said in chapters 1 through 2, but in particular, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, which was, part of last, which was part of last week's passage. There's something about those four verses that I uh, did not tell you last week. Verses, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I, I can't do everything I want to do on a Sunday, so I didn't tell you this. I'm going to tell you this today. If you remember, several times over the past year or two, we have run into something called chiastic structure, chiasm or chiasmus. Chiasmus is a rhetorical or literary device in which words, phrases, or concepts are repeated in reverse order for emphasis. The intention is to make something memorable, to make it stick in our heads and our hearts. So Paul and others structured their writing in this way to make it more memorable. They didn't have a Bible app. They didn't have our Bibles. They really only heard it read publicly, so if you're going to have something read publicly, you, you write it in such a way that it'll be as memorable as possible. And so they use these tools, and chiastic structure is one of the tools in their toolkit to do that. And it works even today. So for example, <clears throat> I'm going to give you the first part of a statement likely that all of us have heard and probably have memorized. And then I want you to shout back the last half of the statements. It's like a response, it's like a call to worship, only that's not what it is. I'll say a phrase, you say the next phrase that goes with it. Are you ready? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. The words going and tough are represented in reverse order so that it sticks, so that it makes it more memorable. In fact, the reason, believe it or not, that you were able to hold on to that and say it back to me is probably because of the chiasmus located in that little phrase. Or if you prefer this one, God is good all the time. There we go. Apologies to those of you who have never done that before. It was popular about 20 years ago. In the case of the Apostle Paul's letters, this chiastic structure is meant to point us to something in particular. Whatever is at the center of the chiasm. Whatever is at the center of the chiasm. See, a chiasm creates, and I think we've said this before, a sort of literary sandwich with the bread on the outside and the meat in the middle. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians bear out a strong chiastic structure, and I've put the diagram I'm going to show you in the Bible app live event so you can look at it. It comes to us from the Bible Project. 
We're not going to go deeply into it, but I do want you to see the structure and see what is at the middle of uh, this, this chiasm. That's chapters 1 through 3, how it's broken out. And what's at the middle? Where's the beef or the Beyond Burger, if you prefer? It is Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, the letter D there, where Paul describes the result of God's mysterious plan. That we, the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, we are the church. We have now become the temple of God. Verses 19 through 22 are about the temple of God, and let's, uh, let's take a look at that. <clears throat> Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. This is back from last week's passage. Fellow citizens of the God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. As you can see, temple language is all over this thing. Let's couple this with something the Apostle Peter says, for these two passages mirror one another. 2 Peter chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about God's plan to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, <clears throat> this is a very important part of what he means. People of different ethnicities becoming living stones in the new temple God is building. Now both Peter and Paul mix their metaphors. We are both the new temple, the physical building, and we are household, we are members of the household, even priests. But back in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells us something else that we've talked about. It's only been implicit, really, and now he makes it explicit. This is the first time he says this. <clears throat> He says that he's in prison. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And by this time, Paul has likely been under house arrest in Rome for more than three years. Paul wants the Gentiles to know that he is in prison for the sake of you Gentiles, for their sake. And then he breaks off to remind them what got him thrown into prison in the first place. His insight and his commitment to this once-hidden mystery and his calling to become an instrument of that, of the administration, the plan of that mystery. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly in the first two chapters. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, that is, as, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Paul is, is back to this language of a mystery that was once hidden and has now been revealed. Twice in these four verses, he speaks of this mystery as having been revealed. And again, a reminder, that word revealed is the word apocalypse. It has been apocalypsed to us by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles and prophets of whom Paul considers himself a member. Now, when you and I hear the word mystery, we think of a riddle, we think of a problem to be solved, or some, a question to be answered, but that is not what's going on here. Uh, Paul is saying that it used to be <clears throat> a mystery. It used to be a mystery. Now it has been revealed. It is a mystery no longer. Leslie Newbegin, 20th century scholar and former missionary to India, 
calls this revealed mystery the open secret. The open secret. And in verse 6, Paul names this open secret a little more clearly. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Hopefully by now you're hearing that Paul keeps bringing this part up over and over again. We're back to this one new humanity that we talked about last week. No, last week, No one is excluded. No one is left out. God has made a way, and this has always been part of God's mysterious plan, the coming together of different kinds of people into one new humanity, the church, has always been part and parcel of the gospel. Then in verses 7 through 9, Paul reinforces these things. He wants to drive this point home. And what he says here is true of all of us. For every single one of us in the history of the world and now are one of two things, Jewish or Gentile. Everybody. Because Gentile means everybody that's not Jewish. So therefore, we're all one of those things. Verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel, Paul says, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. I wasn't worthy of this gift or this calling paul says i persecuted the church but god gave it to me anyway i get to bring to you gentiles the message of the gospel that you too are invited to share in god's promises and the boundless riches of christ and that is still good news today you too whoever you are wherever you are you are invited to share in god's promises and in the boundless riches of Christ. In verse 10, Paul continues his line of thought about this mysterious plan the Creator God had in mind all along, and now he tells us God's intent, God's intent behind that plan, His purposes in the world. So we're going to spend a bit more time on these last few verses here, because they are packed. 10 and 11. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is a lot here. Virtually every phrase could be unpacked. Let's start with this. What is the eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Christ's coming death and resurrection? Well, we first read it. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, with all wisdom and understanding, he, God, made known to, to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Everything else in the book of Ephesians fits into, dovetails, or, and or explains Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. It all goes back to this. Now let's go back and look at some of these other important phrases. And then verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, heavenly realms. First, what does this phrase, the manifold wisdom of God, even mean it it's simply another way of referring to the same thing paul's been talking about the mystery of the plan of god that was once hidden but has now been revealed 
God's plan not merely to save individuals from judgment or from sin, but to bring all kinds of people, every tongue, tribe, and nation, Jews and Gentiles, into the kingdom and to unite them into one body, the church. That's the wisdom of God. <clears throat> there is something in God's plan that will not be fully accomplished, friends, unless and until people who are different than one another can come together and worship and serve God as one people, as one new humanity. This mysterious open, open secret of a plan, which has been accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, will now be, last part of verse 10, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What is that all about? Why does it matter? So Paul sometimes refers to principalities and powers and rulers and the like. And when Paul does this, he is drawing on a rich Old Testament uh, tradition concerning the nature of the world in which we live, the supernatural as well as the natural, the cosmos. If we were to take time, and we'll come back to this again when we get to chapter 6, but if we were to take time to consider all the places where this powers language uh, shows up in the New Testament alone, we would discover that Paul and other writers use it in several ways. It can refer to both heavenly and earthly powers. It can refer to both divine and human beings, visible and invisible, spiritual as well as political structures and systems. It's a very robust concept. In terms of what Paul is talking about in verse 10, he clearly means spiritual beings with evil intent, the kind of beings that we're going to talk about, as I said, in, in chapter 6. Nope. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God's multifaceted wisdom, the mystery of God's plan from before creation, will be made known to the principalities and the powers. The very powers that are bent on our uh, destruction and the division of the unity that God intends for all things. And then here's something amazing. How will this wisdom of God, this mystery, be made known to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly realms? Through the church. Through the church. Through us. Not just us, the whole church, but through us. That's it? That's your plan? That through the church? You're going to make these things known to the principalities and powers? For as badly as the church of Jesus Christ has behaved in the past, or is behaving even now, she is central to the plan of God. She is central to the biblical narrative. She is central to the healing that our community and our nation and our world so badly need. She will remain central until the return of Christ. We will remain central to the plan of God. Shortly before his death, the late philosopher and expert on spiritual formation, Dallas Willard, was asked about the current state of the church. In the course of a two-hour interview, Dallas talked very broadly about the reality that the church of Jesus Christ is not doing too good of a job of turning out followers of Jesus who look and act a lot like Jesus, what we would call here at ECC being on the road to becoming Christiform people. At the end of the interview, he was asked rather pointedly, when you look at how off track the church is, do you ever just throw up your hands in despair? And Dallas smiled and answered, never. 
But how can you not? The interviewer asked. Because, Dallas said, I know Christ is the head of the church and he knows what he's doing. There is no plan B, friends. There's only plan A. And we are the ones we've been waiting for. And I don't know about you, but I find that both very daunting and thrilling at the same time. The very wisdom of God has decreed, I'm not going to do this justice, so I hope the Spirit will communicate this to you. The very wisdom of God has decreed that the mere existence of the church, the body of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles, people of all colors, of all ethnicities, all potentially very different from one another, our mere existence reveals God's wisdom to the powers and the principalities in the heavens. Because in Paul's day, people groups did not mix or mingle. You didn't cross those lines. They were separate. It was believed that this was the order that the gods established. This is how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed, we have a class, we have an order. For Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, low-born and high-born, young and old, to mix into fellowship with one another was a radical idea. And if we are going to truly live into all that, that God's mysterious plan means, we will seek to become transformed and ever-transforming individuals in a transformed and ever-transforming community that God calls us to be and that God made a way for us to be. This, this is how we will prevail against the gates of Hades, as Jesus put it. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul then tells us something that I want to unpack just a minute. In order to see it better, however, I'm going I'm to read from a different translation, the English Standard Version. This plan was revealed to God in whom, in, in, sorry, revealed to, uh, by God in Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Now, to say that we come to God with boldness is not to, to say that we come in arrogance or presumption. It means that we can speak freely to God. This word is sometimes used uh, to describe relationships between friends and how friends can talk to each other with complete candidness. We can take whatever we need to bring to God or say to God, and we can do that. It also means that as we come to God, we can come together as the people of God, as the church, with all our differences, gender, ethnicity, income, social standing, politics, the principalities and the powers are intent on dividing us off from one another and separating us from God. But what Christ has accomplished and what God is making known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms is that we can all now come to God and come to one another in total freedom and confidence and boldness. Nothing can stand in our way. Not the dividing wall of hostility that kept the Gentiles out of the temple. Not the commands and the laws of the Torah that sin twisted into division and racism and hatred. Not even our own sin. Because what Christ has done is definitive. Not only has Christ called individuals to himself, but he has gathered those individuals into the church and he has made that church to be a force 
to be reckoned with, a demonstration of the wisdom of God, the purposes of God, and the gates of hell and death will not prevail against it. The gates of hell and death will not prevail against us. And next week, Paul is going to offer up that prayer. A prayer for his readers and a prayer for us in verses 14 to 21. So with that, this is how I want to close this morning. I want to go ahead and read that next section from Ephesians 3, that prayer. And as I read it, I want us to hear it and receive it as a prayer that the Apostle Paul is praying over us, because I believe he did. In some strange, amazing way, he still does. And then during the week, I invite you to return to this prayer, to meditate on it, and then we will dive in more fully next Sunday. So would you stand as I read and pray this prayer over you for Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to Him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.